Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. It is a paradox, isn't it? One that the Old Testament saints had a hard time grappling with. Remember, they used to think there were two messiahs. The Old Testament Jew would wonder, how can there be a reigning Savior and a suffering Savior? Is there more than one? Of course, uh, we who are privileged to have the rest of the New Testament, we can say, praise God, He's both. He's accomplished one, He's reigning now, and He will reign eternally on this present earth. What a precious thing. Are you there back in uh, the book of Acts? It's going to be kind of a... This is going to be our starting point. You know, those of you that are uh, here normally, uh, we kind of like to go through books of the Bible. We believe expository preaching as a general rule is the best uh, way to go through it because then we don't get on hobby horses too much. We want to teach all the counsel of God. Uh, This morning's a little bit of a departure. We're going to survey kind of a larger uh, section. And really, this morning's not a technical exposition. We're going to talk about some fairly basic things that we need to be reminded of. And it's probably a good message to follow a meal like we just ate. (laughs) Uh, So stick with me. There is some meat for us in the passages that we're going to cover. Now, most of us, I think, are familiar with the chronology. Christ rose from the dead after the third day. Then he ascended up to heaven eventually. But in between those two events, there were 40 days that went by. Where he hadn't yet ascended to heaven... They couldn't necessarily always find him, but he was here bodily on the earth still in a resurrected form. Now, if I were to pose the question to you, uh, why do you think that Jesus stayed here on earth for those 40 days after his resurrection? What would you say? I chewed on that myself, and uh, I'm sure that I don't know all of the reasons why. There's uh, no doubt reasons for that that God does not tell us. And there's more than one correct answer. There's a few of them given right here in the passages that we just read. If you'll notice Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, uh, He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. So part of the reason for that 40 days was to take away any reasonable doubt that he was indeed risen again. And you can read through the New Testament record and see the reactions of the Jewish and the Roman leaders. The bribe money that was paid to the soldiers, the lies that were told to their superiors to cover their tracks. Roman soldiers didn't sleep on the job. You had a job to do, don't let that body out of that tomb, and it happened. You were going to be parted from your head. Why were they allowed to live? You see the sheer number of witnesses mentioned. Their willingness to die terrible deaths preaching about a risen Savior certainly constituted infallible proof. And then we see another reason in that same verse, being seen of them 40 days. Now, that goes along with the infallible proofs. They saw him after he was risen, but I think we can also infer from that he stayed around those 40 days. At least part of the reason was to comfort his followers. No doubt his presence would do that for that one month Uh, Plus, after they had been through what they had been through, and he spoke many words of comfort to that end. So why did Jesus stay on on the earth those 40 days? Some of the reasons, proof, comfort, and a third reason given here is teaching. Look at verse 3, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Proof, comfort, 
teaching. Some of the reasons Christ was here for that 40-day interim period. Now, it's that third element that we're going to zero in on some this morning. Now, without a question, there's many things Christ said in those 40 days that we are not given. The, The Holy Spirit did not see fit to record those. They're not for us. But there are many circumstances and conversations that we are made aware of. So this morning, we're going to survey just some very basic lessons for the Christian life that were highlighted between the resurrection and the ascension. Now, every one of these you can trace through other parts of Scripture. None of these are isolated to this particular 40-day period, but they were highlighted while the Lord walked the earth in resurrected form. All right, lesson number one, if you'll just flip back probably a page for most of you. John chapter 20, verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Lesson number one we can pull from that. God's greatest victories often look like terrible defeats at first glance. And God's greatest blessings more often than not, follow the times of greatest blackness. I know for most of us, our life experience backs that up also, as well as the Scriptures. Notice it says, when she went to the tomb, when it was yet dark. Well, obviously that was talking about the lack of daylight, but more ways than one, it was yet dark. There was some serious darkness within. I mean, can mortal tongue even describe the grief of his followers during the preceding 72 hours? I know they were told repeatedly he had to die, he was going to raise again. He had to die, he was going to raise again. But it hadn't sunk in. Now picture yourself. You're a dyed-in-the-wool Jew, and for generations your people have waited for the Savior. And finally one comes, and all the prophecies point to him. You know this is the Lamb of God. This is the Savior of the world. This is the coming King. But once again... They were saying, man of sorrows, what a name. Or the Son of God who came. How can this happen to him? Imagine the confusion, the fear, the false expectations that had been shattered, the heartache, the humiliation. People saying, hey, where's your king now? Huh? The king of the Jews, some king. And now at least they can find some solace in anointing his dead body. But apparently not even that can be done now. You think back to Joseph's life. It was very dark for Joseph in that Egyptian prison, wasn't it? Just a day before God's greater purpose for his life was manifested when he was drug out of that dungeon and made prime minister, the second most powerful man in the world, to deliver his own people. It was very black for Israel when they're led by God out of Egypt. And then he brings them to a place called Piahiroth, a little narrow canyon where they're blocked in by rocks and they're right up against the Red Sea. And then he sends Pharaoh's army after them. And they're looking around going, you got to be kidding me. This is our deliverance? Well, God made it apparent what he was going to do, didn't he? Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And woof. The waters parted. I think of the disciples 
the occasion where Jesus sent them out into the Sea of Galilee into what he knew was going to be a storm. And here they are rowing away at nighttime. And these are seasoned fishermen. They're afraid they're going to die. It's total blackness. They're crying out in fear for their life. And all of a sudden, walking across this wave, the waves, what do they see? They think it's a ghost. <laughs> they didn't know it was Jesus at first. Things seem to get worse. I mean, what did the unbelieving world see when the Son of God in naked shame was nailed to that cross? What did human eyes view? They saw defeat and weakness and failure. What was really happening? Satan defeated? God's love displayed? Sin atoned for? Prophecy fulfilled? God glorified? All through the seeming defeat. What does an empty tomb mean to you? Well, you would say it's a sign of victory of a, of a risen Savior. Well, that's because you know the rest of the story. On that Sunday morning for Mary Magdalene, all it meant at first was another crushing defeat. When she went there, she didn't say, oh great, the stones rolled away. She said, oh no, where'd the body go now? I came here just to anoint a body. I mean, can't the lady do that? It meant grave robbers. Can't they just let his body rest? Can I at least do something for him? It's not what she had hoped. His body's gone. What now? So at least at first glance, even the empty tomb wasn't recognized as glorious news until later. And basic lesson number two, Christ absolutely wants to use us. If you belong to Him, He wants to use you. But He never, ever needs you. Boy, is that huge to remember. Who was it that moved the stone away from that grave? Well, we're told in Matthew 28, here comes an angel, and he rolls back the stone, and he sits on top of it, while these hardened Roman soldiers go lights out on the turf. But the Lord didn't call that angel for help getting out of the tomb himself. He sent that angel on a mission to open the tomb so his disciples could get in and see that he was not there. We can never make the mistake of thinking he needs us because God needs nothing. I think Mary came on that morning of a true heart of devotion out of love for Christ, yet she was expecting to do something for him in his time of need, to take care of him when he couldn't take care of himself. Is there ever a time when God can't take care of Himself? I mean, think of Jesus during the years of His condescension and humiliation on earth. You really don't read of men giving Him anything except grief. But it's ladies you read about who says ministered to them of their substance. They supported Him. They supported Him in His ministry. Now, He was delighted to let them minister, yet He never needed it. Remember, this is the one who created something or things out of nothing. He could multiply loaves and fishes to feed thousands. He could, I remember what John the Baptist said, he told the Jews, think not within yourselves. We have Abraham to our father. He said, don't sit here and tell me you're children of Abraham. God's able to take these rocks and raise up more Jews. And I'm telling you, God, if he wanted to, is able of these rocks or these chairs or those trees outside to raise up more Christians if he wanted wants to use us. 
but He does not need us. And Christ was able to pass right through a vicious mob that was trying to kill Him. He was able to veil Himself so that they could not even see Him. And He became fully man. He laid aside the exercise of some of His attributes, but even then, He never stopped being God. And even in Luke 23, He's on His way to the cross, and there's this group primarily composed of women. They're following Him, and they're weeping, and they're wailing. He says an interesting thing. He turns to them and He says, Daughters of Jerusalem... Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, these apparently were just nominal followers. They had lots of emotional feelings for this poor man who was condemned to die. But Jesus turned to them and said, Don't cry for my sake. Judgment's coming on you. You need to learn to cry for your own sake. It's an interesting thing that he said. We talked recently about not grieving the Holy Spirit. We can actually cause Him pain because of our sin. Yet we have to remember when it comes to serving Him, we never do it to help Him out in a time of need. God does not have times of need. It's a foreign concept to Him. You think He needs me this morning? You think He needs ministers to stand up here? God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save men. Uh, Why He commissioned men to do this, I cannot tell you. I just know that He has. But I can tell you this, He does not need me. He wants to use me, but He doesn't need me. I've heard missionary appeals. I've heard Bible college students told, you need to go into the ministry. God needs you. That's bad theology. It's a privilege to serve Him, but don't ever think you're God's gift to Himself in that sense. Or that His kingdom's going to fail if you don't man your post, so you better get involved to help God out. No. No, God needs nothing. He wants to use us, but He doesn't need us. Thirdly, He's never very far away, but we are very prone to not recognize Him. Look at verse 14. Now here's Mary still. When she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she still thinks that, uh, that he's the gardener. You see, in her mind, Jesus was supposed to be dead. Still, cold, lifeless. And she was so intent on that that she didn't even recognize him standing right behind her. Now I know he could veil himself. But she was looking for a different manifestation. <laughs> and she was looking for a dead Savior. And she didn't recognize the risen one standing there. Now, I know we're quite convinced He's alive, aren't we, this morning, theologically, but we can make the same mistake in other areas. God has to do things a certain way, right? God has to answer my prayers a certain way. If we're not careful, our faith gets placed in what we think He's going to do, not in who He is. It's a devastating thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray boldly. We should. But always remember this. God reserves the right to answer you completely different than you think He should. I've told many of you the precious blessing that journaling has been over the years, but one of my favorite things is to go back over the years and realize how many prayers God answered completely differently than I thought. And I didn't even notice at the time. 
We're over here. We're looking over here. God has to do this. Lord, do this. And He comes right behind us and does something better. And we don't even see it. We're bewildered going, Lord, where are you? (laughs) Oftentimes, He'll answer in a way we at first don't even recognize, but it's far better. What was better for Mary? That she was showed where to find the body? Or that she saw Him living? Three times in this passage, you can notice it for yourself. Verse 2, verse 13, verse 15. She says to Peter, they took the body, I can't find it. And then she says to the two angels, they took the body and I, I can't find it. And then she says to Christ himself, can't find the body. Do you know where it is? What did she get instead of that? Mary. He's alive. But fourthly, along those same lines, we must never forget He's the God of the commonplace. Do we hear that this morning? He can do the cataclysmic. Absolutely, He can. But His preferred method, you can trace this through the Scriptures, His preferred method is using everyday occurrences which really are no less miraculous. No less out of his, or no more out of, or no less out of his control. That's one of the main lessons in the book of Esther. It's a fascinating book. One of the things that astounds some of you about it too. God is never mentioned once in that book directly. But yet you see his fingerprints the whole book. You see the God of the commonplace. Moving hearts behind the scenes, orchestrating circumstances, bringing things to mind. Things that we would consider everyday, mundane. It's one of the main lessons Elijah had to learn. What was it that put him under that juniper tree in 1 Kings 19? Well, part of the problem was he was used to seeing God do the cataclysmic. And when God didn't step in and do the cataclysmic with Jezebel, he was, he was out of there. Remember what God does? He takes him across the wilderness. He takes him to Mount Sinai where he had met with Moses. Remember, here's this wind that breaks the rocks. It's terrifying fire and a big earthquake. And it says God wasn't in those things. But after those, a still small voice. What doest thou here, Elijah? He's the God of the commonplace. I find it interesting that Mary thought he was the gardener of all things. The basic everyday laborer who is always at the cemetery. Who's that? Oh, it's just the gardener. What is a gardener doing? He's watering, he's fertilizing, he's cutting, he's pruning, he's planting. Bit by bit, day by day, laboring towards a beautiful end. And we can get so wrapped up wanting Him to do something big that we miss His continual perfect control in that which is small, every day, minute. And Jesus said, I am the true vine and My Father is the miracle worker. Well, He's that too. But Jesus said, My Father is the husbandman, the gardener, the vine dresser who's always working through commonplace. Uh, Fifthly, it is actually very good for you and I that Jesus is not still here in a physical body. That is hard to swallow. Trust me, I know flesh jumps up and goes, oh, no, 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 that's not true. 
If only Jesus were maybe sitting down here at the state capitol, why, I'd walk right in there and have all my problems solved. But see, we have to hear the words of Christ on that subject. Apparently, his disciples had the same problem. They're thinking, hey, he's risen from the dead, just stay here. And what would you think after those 40 days? Hey, it's worked for this long. Why not just stay? Do you have to go? And uh, so Mary turns around. She sees who he is. Look at what the Lord says in verse 17. Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. There's all kinds of discussion on what he meant there, but I think it's fairly plain if you compare other passages where he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit and his own ascension. When he says, touch me not, the word, it actually means don't cling to me. Don't hang on to me and try to keep me here. In her mind, he's alive, happily ever after, just stay. But the Lord says, don't cling to me, I'm not staying. I'm going up to my Father. In fact, rather than staying here hanging on to me, go tell my disciples that I am leaving. Of course, the Lord had taught the disciples in the upper room. You remember what he said in John 16, verse 6? Uh, because I have said these things, sorrow hath filled your heart. And then in verse 7, he says something that catches us off guard. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. It is good for you that I'm leaving. Huh? Of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit taking up a new ministry of dwelling within as a permanent residence. Now, you and I, as part of the New Testament church, have blessings the Old Testament saints didn't have. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost if you're a Christian. You have Him as a permanent resident. That's why you can grieve Him. And Jesus says the ministry the Holy Spirit's going to carry out within you is far better than me being here physically. Astounding. We often think, well, if only Jesus were here bodily. Well, that's really not the best for us, actually, according to Christ's own words. Sixthly, he wants to give us peace. But he wants to give us peace in the middle of trials, not in the absence of trials. That's spread all over the New Testament, isn't it? Count it all joy when you fall into tribulation or when you call into, fall into temptation. So, uh, why? Knowing this, the tribulation worketh patience. And there's all kinds of things said in the New Testament of the blessings of tribulation. And it's very much, you and I know this, it's very much a human tendency. Just get me out of this pickle and I'll be at rest. And here, once again, this is illustrated all over the place, but look at verse 19. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the disciples were shut, uh, were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. So here's the disciples. They're locked up in this chamber somewhere. They've got the doors bolted. They're terrified of what's outside. Jesus doesn't show up and bust down the doors, get rid of these locks and vaporize their Jewish enemies. He shows up right in the middle and He says, Peace be unto you. And rather than taking away their difficulties right then, what does He do? He shows them His hands and His side. 
And it says, they were glad when they saw the Lord. You notice, their external problems didn't go away. But it was the presence of Jesus that put them in perspective. Uh, we have those moments, don't we? <laughs> We're locked up in prison of fear, scared of what's out there, terrified of circumstances, battered by it. What precious fellowship the Lord wants to have with us, dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. And He's a lot of times not going to take away your trial right then, but He's going to show you His hands and His side. And we can be glad when we see the Lord through His Word. John 16, He told them in the world, Ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. A seventh, the Lord knows our faith has to rest on a solid foundation. A Bible faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's actually a very damaging thing to portray it that way. Or like the little girl that was asked, do you know what faith is? And she said, yeah, it's believing what you know isn't so. That's not Bible faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines or at least makes an attempt at a definition of faith this way. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Bible faith is based on history, solid reality, infallible proof, divine truth. God has given ample evidence to back up His Word. I realize He earned the name somewhat, but I'm not a big fan of chiding Thomas and calling him Doubting Thomas. Because all of the disciples, if you remember, had just been shown the Lord's nail prints in His wounded side. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't interested in dying for a lie. He didn't want to be misled or he didn't want to perpetuate a falsehood himself. In fact, his skepticism at, at first shows he was not blindly infatuated. But whether his request was perfectly correct or not, the Lord did condescend and appear to him. In verse 29, the Lord comes right up to him. He said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Notice with all the evidence before him, he still had to make a choice to believe. God does not have to bow to the arrogant demands of mortal creatures. There were times Christ told the Jews, I'm not going to show you a sign. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. They didn't really want truth. And somebody says, God, give me a sign and I'll believe. Well, if you won't hear Moses and the prophets, you won't believe even if one rose from the dead. However, God does give enough evidence to convince the truly willing I think most of us have had times where we're sorely lacking in the faith department and the Lord moves powerfully in some way to make His presence known. Or He uses a statement from His Word that just penetrates your inner man like a lightning bolt and all of a sudden the dungeon just flames with lights. And God has on purpose left archaeological, historical, scientific, logical, prophetic evidence along with the miraculous transformation of millions of people from sinners into saints to convince any honest Thomases that are out there. You and I are mentioned in verse 29. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. 
We can't put our physical hands into his physical side and feel the nail prints, but we have all sorts of other infallible proofs. Plenty to convince the intellectually honest. Number eight, we may think we can handle a good amount of things on our own, and that will just speak with God about the big stuff. Uh, but in reality, we can't even do the most mundane of duties without His help. I mean, think how much God in His mercy lets us do when we're not even cognizant of His sustaining grace. When was the last time you brushed your teeth and thought, if the Lord wasn't sustaining my molecules right now, I couldn't even do this? We don't usually think that way. But it's true. But yet sometimes He'll cut through that veneer of pretense on our part, and He'll see fit for our own good to make it painfully aware how utterly powerless we are to do the least of duties without Him. John 21, verse 3. Here's Simon Peter and company. And uh, Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. Hey boys, let's, uh, let's get back in the boat. You know, the amazing thing, Peter in the last chapter had already seen the risen Lord, but apparently he wasn't quite sure what to do next. And I think his own denial of Christ was still replaying in his mind and, he, and really hadn't been dealt with. He's just hanging out there. So he's going to go back to fishing. I mean, at least he could succeed at that, right? I know how to fish. At least I can get that one correct. <laughs> Verse 3, they fish all night. Uh, they didn't catch two uh, or one. They caught zero. Nothing. When you talk about a boatload of guys that felt like losers at this point. We couldn't stand with our Savior. Now we can't even catch a fish. Christ ain't going to use us. We can't earn a living. Oh, man. And so right on the heels of that, all of a sudden this man shows up on the shore and starts talking to them. Children, have you any meat? How's the fishing? We all like to be asked that after we've been skunked all day, right? <laughs> We're, How's the fishing? Now for them, this wasn't a pastime. This was their livelihood. And of all mundane changes do suggest, he doesn't say go over on the other side. He says, oh, just throw your net on the other side of the boat. Are you kidding me? You, you, come on, you, do this, and that's good. Okay, but to their credit, they did it. All right, what do we have to lose? We're not going to catch less than we have. And so they throw the net over there, and the thing fills up. See, that was part of Peter's instruction that was going to bring him to repentance. It was a preparation for the conversation to follow. Peter needed to understand he wasn't just a failure standing boldly in and of himself. But without the Lord, he could do nothing. Not even fish. I mean, I wonder, did Peter's mind go back to all the successful trips he'd had before he was walking with Christ? And the fact that every one of those fish was placed in his net by the loving hands of God? And uh, the Lord fills Peter's net for him. And Peter can't wait to get to shore. He throws his coat on. He dives in. He's going to swim back. Lesson number nine, basic lesson. It's oftentimes God's goodness that leads us to repentance. Jesus did not come after Peter with a stick this time. God will do that too. 
A correction was coming, but the Lord's method was not what we would expect. What did he do? First, he gives them a full net. Then he gives them a full stomach. Then he gives them a full ear, which gave him a heavy heart, which opened up the doorway for his recommissioning. It was God's goodness that brought him to repentance. And tenthly, so important to remember, Christ does not just tolerate fellowship with us. He, he doesn't need it. He desires fellowship with every single Christian person. In verse 10, uh, Peter's not turned away. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. You got plans for those. Look at verse 12. Now remember, when the Lord's waving at him here, there's scars in these hands now. Come and dine. Now, Peter had seen the Lord at least once already, but as far as I can tell, there wasn't a meal included yet. So when the Lord says that to Peter, come and dine, it would have probably dawned on Peter the last time he said that to me. I stood there and I called him a liar. I will never deny you. I will not do that. Though all men do, I will not do that. And then he does. And now those hands are saying, Come. Come have fellowship with me, Peter. The Lord wants fellowship with His children. Yes, He resisteth the proud. If we walk in darkness, He cannot have fellowship with us. But never forget that. He does not want us to stay there. It's so astounding. A certain verse in uh, Revelation chapter 3, it's often used as an evangelistic verse. It can be used that way, but it's actually talking to Christian people. Remember how the church at Laodicea had been described? Not a flattering picture. The Lord tells them, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. They could be called the church that made Christ want to vomit. That's what spew means. He said, you say you're rich and increased with goods and you don't have any clue you're poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. What does that even mean? He's finished with them. It's to that very church, he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You know, the reality is you and I are never shut out by God as Christians. We choose to shut Him out. If we're intent on dwelling in the tents of wickedness, we can forget nearness to God. But He hasn't moved. We're the ones that have locked the door. Number 11, lots more could be said here. But let me just highlight this. When we fail, even colossally, we have to deal with it, accept His forgiveness, get up, 
and move on. I mean, there's lots of reasons Peter's failure is recorded. But I think one of them is that God will still use us after we fail, provided it's dealt with properly. Sometimes we can shut certain ministry doors to ourself by sins. There's scars sometimes that don't go away. But nonetheless, you're still living as a Christian on this earth. I guarantee you God has some things for you to do in His service. Think how massive Peter's downfall was. Just think about it for a minute. This is the leader of the Lord's inner circle. This is the guy. And he's publicly cursing and denying he ever knew Jesus at all. And what's more, it's recorded in the Gospels so that you and I are sitting here discussing Peter's failure almost 2,000 years later. You talk about a widespread goof-up. I know we're perfect in heaven, I know, but do you think Peter might get sick of getting asked about that someday? <laughs> the Lord comes to him, though, deals with the problem. I mean, there were probably times Peter ran into situations and someone said, oh, you, you're going to stand and preach boldly? Weren't you the guy that said he didn't know him? And he may hang his head in shame and say, yeah, that was me. But let me tell you something. That doesn't take away from his glory. I failed. I failed. But he's still God. So the Lord asked some probing questions. And Peter wouldn't use the word agape back. Remember, there's different Greek words used in that. We're not going to go through it in detail. You can trace those through yourself. But the Lord asked Simon Peter, Lovest thou me? Agape, God-centered, God, God's love. Peter uses phileo back, brotherly affection. And finally, the third time, the Lord asked, Do you have brotherly affection for me? Because that's all Peter was going to claim. He knew himself enough to know, I'm not going to claim self-sacrificial love anymore. I failed. What does the Lord say to him? Peter had said, I don't know him. Later on, the Lord said, feed my lambs. And Peter said, I never heard of him. The Lord said, feed my sheep. Peter cursed and said, I'm telling you, I don't know who he is. The Lord says again, feed my sheep. He restored him. He used him. Twelfthly, it's going to cost something to follow him. Right after Peter's restoration, the Lord tells him, feed my sheep. Look at verse 18. Immediately after he says that, Peter, you're recommissioned, not just lambs, not just little ones, but the actual mature of my flock. You're commissioned to feed them. But immediately in verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee, carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. You get the order? Peter fails colossally. The Lord restores him and says, Feed my sheep. And then he tells him, as a result of feeding my sheep and walking with me, you are going to die a horrible death. 
follow me. Follow me still. It's not natural to desire suffering. The Lord knows that. Even Christ, it was recorded for us to hear. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, it didn't pass from him. It could not. But at the same time, it's dishonest to present a costless Christianity to people, and that is very, very commonplace today. Come to Jesus. Have your best life now. I mean, just think. Think of all the features... Advantages and benefits, just like heavenly car salesmen. He'll give you a plus mansion in the heavens. He'll fix your marriage. Uh, All your life relationships will flourish. He'll give you a promotion. He'll fill your wallet. He'll heal your body. He'll make you have all the answers so people just sit around your feet and marvel at your wisdom. He'll give you thousands of friends. He'll make all your dreams come true. Just put the money in the offering plate. How sick is that? What does the Bible actually say? All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In the world ye shall have tribulation. I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Woe unto you, and all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers unto the false prophets. Luke 14 is a difficult chapter, but some of the things were told there. Take up your cross and follow me. We're told there to count the cost. So here's somebody on the verge of trusting Christ. They're wrestling with divine truth. They're not led through some little repeat a prayer gimmick, but they're actually under Holy Spirit conviction and they're right at the doorway to eternal life. You know what an honest evangelist does? Before you step through that doorway, let me tell you something. Jesus paid it all for your sin debt but it's going to cost you to follow Him. There's things when you come to Christ, you turn your back on. There's doors that you're walking away from. It may affect your finances. It may affect your health. It will affect your friends. It will affect your relationships. Yes, some of them may be healed, but Jesus also said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And many times when the gospel comes into a home, it's a divider because men don't want the truth. It's dishonest to tell people, come to Jesus as your little genie in a bottle. No, men are drawn because truth is powerful without all the fluff to sugarcoat it. For generations, people came to Christ when they watched Christians thrown to the lions. The truth doesn't need our additions. Don't get me wrong, there's plenty of blessings coming to Christ. But we need to give the whole story. It's going to cost something. Number 13, God's specific calling for us is unique and nobody else can be your exact pattern. And you need to worry about primarily discerning and doing God's will for you. It's interesting, the Lord tells Peter that, how he's going to die. And uh, what's the next thing out of Peter's mouth? Verse 20, then Peter turning about, and uh, Peter sees John. Okay, the Lord says to Peter, we know historically he was crucified upside down, but the Lord said, you're going to be martyred for my sake. And the next thing Peter does is he turns, he sees John, and he says, "Uh, what about him? What's going to happen with him? And the Lord doesn't say, well, here's what's going to happen to him. 
Uh, neither does he say, I'm not going to tell you. Look what he says in verse 22. If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. He said, Peter, if I choose to have him live for hundreds of years and never die, what does that have to do with you? You worry about following me. Because my calling for him is different than my calling for you. Now, we can help each other in the Christian life. There, there's a, a good way we can be helped by biographies and things like that. But remember, nobody else ultimately is your pattern except Christ. And we're very prone to do this. How come this is happening to them? How come this is happening? We don't know all the answers. God's not going to give them to us. The Lord says, you follow me. Nobody else is your measuring stick. We sing the song, some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. In God's providence, where was Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were hurled into the fiery furnace? We don't know. We assume he was traveling on some affairs of state, but we're not told. God didn't have him there. But then again, those three weren't around when Daniel went into the lion's den, were they? You see, God's providence was unique. 14, we're almost done. There are things that God is not going to tell us now, and it's good for us not to know. And one of those is the specific timing of end times events, and especially Christ's return, and there's a lot more we could put in that category. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, if you're taking notes, it's a very, very important verse when it comes to overall Bible interpretation. Here's what that verse says. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So even way back there, it's acknowledged, we should have a heart to know all that God has revealed to us so that we can obey Him, but at the same time, we have to recognize He has reserved many things unto Himself that He will not tell us, at least right now. Many ministries can get consumed with knowing the unknowable, speculation, date setting, predictions, sensationalism. These are a dime a dozen. Ministries that focus on prophecy are especially in danger. Prophecy is wonderful, don't get me wrong, but there's only so much prophecy. There's only so much of it that's been literally fulfilled. And then you start getting into speculation and it becomes a dangerous downward spiral that a lot of people never recover from. So we have to understand, we want to know what God revealed. God has revealed. He's given us His written Word. It's complete. We want to know it. We want to do it. But we also need to be content that He reserves some things, secret things, that belong unto Him. Look at their question in Acts 1, verse 6. Here the Lord's about to ascend to heaven, Acts 1, 6. Now look what's still on their mind. Uh, when they therefore were come together, they asked of Him, saying, Lord, wilt Thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They're still consumed with Him conquering the Romans. Now, it's easy for us to sit in smugness and say, oh, isn't that cute? But 
In reality, we'd be the same way. So they're saying, all right, Lord, you, you're risen from the dead. You know, you went through the crucifixion. So how about going to Rome and, and taking care of Caesar? Huh? Can we do that now? Look at the answer in Acts 1.7. Again, it's not yes, no, or maybe. Here's what he says. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. He says to them, it's not for you. It's not good for you to know it. And I'm not going to tell you. But here's what you are getting instead. You're asking for end times knowledge beyond what I've revealed. I'm not going to give you that. But here's what you are going to get. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You're going to receive God-given ability that do supernatural things, namely, to raise people from spiritual death unto spiritual life. Now, you want this knowledge I'm not going to give you? I'm giving you power so you can carry out a very specific commission. And God has deliberately given power to witness for Him instead of the knowledge that we think we want sometimes. There's plenty in the Bible we don't understand, I grant it, but there's a whole lot of things God hasn't told us. I like to tell people, the Bible isn't everything there is to know about God. It's everything God has revealed about Himself for now. Uh, we're going to keep learning about Him forever. But His Word is complete down here on earth. So are we content with what He has given in that respect? and just as content with what He has not given. Lastly, number 15, Christ is coming back the exact same way that He went out. Now think about this. Look at the angels say to Him. I mean, Jesus ascends, and I would, I would have been staring too. And they're sitting here, mouth hanging open, catching flies. And uh, a cloud had come, taking them up out of their sight, and they're standing there staring. And two men stood by them in white apparel, verse 10, these angels, and they say, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So the angel said, You know something? When he comes back, it's going to be the opposite order of what you just saw. How so? He was taken up in a cloud, and uh, he was physically seen. It wasn't just some phantasm. Revelation 1.7 says of Christ, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced Him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. You catch that? When He's coming again, it's with clouds. And every eye is going to see Him. He's going to come back in a physical, resurrected, glorified body. And He's going to come back to that same spot on the Mount of Olives 
Some of you have heard me quote J. Vernon McGee, what he said. He said, I believe that so literally that if he took off with his left foot, he's going to land with his right foot. <laughs> but he's coming back with clouds. Every eye is going to see him in a physical resurrected body to the same exact spot on the same exact mountain, which other passages tell us. The minute he touches down on that, it's going to split right in half into a valley. And he's going to take everlasting possession of his kingdom. But as tempting as it is to just watch the skies, why stand ye gazing up to heaven? I think the angel's point was, serve him while you have time. We see the disciples return they again to Jerusalem, but they learn to labor with one eye toward the heavens above, both hands on the plow below. Well, Christ's resurrection is a glorious thing. But it's not a news to merely keep hidden. It's a news to live out. It's a news to speak and tell others about. There's joy with it. There's also a very serious warning. When it says there, every eye shall see Him and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. There's going to be a worldwide shriek of terror when King Jesus comes back. And He's not coming back in humiliation. And He's not coming back riding upon a colt. And He's not coming back to die. He's coming to rule. Do you know Him this morning? The resurrection is wonderful stuff. Many look at it just as a historical fact, just like Abraham Lincoln lived. But if you don't see it as more than that, it really means nothing to you. What's the, what's the question that's really going to matter on Judgment Day? It's not who's Christ, that's important. But who is He to you and what have you done with Him? Is He merely a historical figure? Is He merely a good man? Is He merely somebody who helped you earn your way back to God? Or is He completely God who veiled Himself in a body of flesh, lived an impeccable life and died on that cross? And when He said it is finished, He meant it. And there's nothing for you to do to save yourself. You can't change yourself. You can't turn over a new leaf. You can't just get religion. You need new birth. And there's one way that's going to happen. You humble yourself before Him as the sinner He says you are. And you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior completely. From sin's dominion, sin's power, sin's penalty. There's one way to escape the judgment of God, and that's by running to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these basic lessons, which really, I guess, aren't so basic. They're so necessary to keep repeating. Lord, we want to live expectantly. We want to gaze up at the heavens periodically and remember Jesus is coming. But Lord, let us use that not as, not as a reason to quit or give up, but as a motivation that our hourglass is running out of sand, that our time on this earth is speedily coming to an end. Help us, Lord, to be joyful that Jesus is risen, but yet diligent and careful to run this race, to fight this warfare in a way that honors You. 
Help us to be filled with compassion in a world that sorely lacks it. Help us to be full of genuine, real, biblical love in a world full of hate. But Lord, help us also to stand militantly and boldly for truth in a world full of lies. Thank you that we have a risen Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.